And if you have a Bible this morning, you're welcome to uh, grab one. Uh, if you have a Bible, excuse me, uh, please turn to actually Matthew chapter 1, and I'll explain that in just a second. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the sides of the tech booth. Feel free to go grab one. If you need to borrow it, you can borrow it. If you're a user of the Bible app, uh, feel free to uh, open and find our live event and track along right now. Now, I said turn to Matthew chapter 1. Um, so let me get there as well. Here it is right here. And then I want you to take and you turn one page back to the left because it's way easier to tell you Matthew chapter 1 than Malachi 4. Am I right, people? All right. Bunch of pagans. All right. Hey, did you have a good Thanksgiving, everybody? Good, 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 good. Um, so if you have not been around our church family uh, at the holiday season, um, we kind of put all of our normal teaching stuff on pause uh, for the four um, themes of Advent. And so next week we'll kick off hope and then peace, joy, and love as we move towards um, Christmas Day, a Christmas Eve celebration, and then Christmas Day. Uh, and, and Advent is simply a time of anticipation of the arrival of Jesus, that God has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And so our hearts kind of begin to anticipate that. If you can kind of recall in your brain um, what it was like for you as a kid to come down the stairs on Christmas morning and you woke up and you're like, is it time yet? And you came bounding down this, anticipating what, uh, what awaited you there. So that in, is a small picture, uh, uh, kind of a childlike picture of, of how we orient our hearts and what orients our hearts, what the kind of gravitational force in this season uh, is that it pulls us into orbit around Jesus has come. And we get to anticipate celebrating that. So um, what I wanted to do today is, is talk a little bit about um, how we prepare for Advent, how we prepare for Christmas time, for Jesus coming. And, and strangely enough, the, 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 excuse me, the title of the sermon on the bullets, preparing in silence, because we're going to see there's some important silence that happens here. But before we get there, I wanted to walk through Malachi chapter 4, because it actually sets up the silence. You ready? Malachi 4 verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. It's a fun verse right there. Nobody puts that on a plaque, but I mean, all right. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor Branch. So let's just pause here, because what, what's he talking about? The Old Testament, all of the prophets in the Old Testament had this phrase, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And from Isaiah all the way here through Malachi, we've get the, we get this sense that this is an important day. It's a coming day. The Bible has all sorts of ways that it talks about it. For some of it, it's good. For some people, it's good. They're like, yes, thank you, God, that the day of the Lord is coming. For some people, they're like, Oh, the day of the Lord is coming? Mm. Some of you feel like that. Oh, yeah, God sees what's going on in my life. Thank you, God, for that. Some of you are like, oh, God sees what's going on in my life? Huh. Some of you feel like that. So the day of the Lord is this theme. It's this theme that, that travels all throughout the Old Testament prophets. And here we've got Malachi kind of summarizing. And as he's describing it, I want to just take a, a moment here just to walk through his description. The first thing that he says description-wise is this, um, that, that the day of the Lord is a day when all evil will be finally put to, uh, it'll be, we will be rid of all evil. Anybody down with that right there? Man, oh man, let's, let's just read back in verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. 
Now, the ovens back then were not, you know, like you program in, uh, you know, 350 for 10 minutes. Well, that, that was not it. Like you threw some fire in and then kind of cooked on top of it. And you, you can only control a certain amount of, of how hot the fire was. So when he talks like that, think like self-cleaning setting on your oven, okay? Like it's serious. Burning like an oven. When all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. Anybody know what happens to stubble when it gets close to the fire? Toast. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. And how complete is it? So that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Anybody ever tried to kill bamboo before? You cut it down, it grows back. You cut it down, it grows back. You dig a little bit on the root, it still grows back. In this particular case, the fire is so severe that it burns both the branch as well as the root. So the riddance of evil, the ridding of evil is going to be so complete that both branch and root will be done. When the day of the Lord comes, that is what's going to be true. Who's down with getting rid of evil in this world? Great, okay. If, if that's not enough though, I mean, this is a beautiful thing. I mean, because being rid of the bad is one thing. That's a great thing actually. Um, but, but it's not just that. Look at verse 2. So it's not just ridding of the evil, but also verse 2. But for you who fear my name. So the people of God. For you who fear my name. The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now, I got to be honest. I don't know much about calves leaping from the stall. Sounds like a pretty awesome thing to me. Okay, maybe you can pick that up later. Here's what I do know. When the darkness finally ends and the sun comes up, that's a good thing. And it's not just that the sun rises. What does it say? That the sun rises with healing in its wings, with salvation in its wings. When it comes up, good stuff starts flowing our way. This is what the day of the Lord is like. This is what it's like when God comes. Evil is put to flight and healing comes. Verse 3, and you shall tread down the wicked. I love that. Um, For they they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Um, There's a sense of justice, of rightness in the world. The evil are put down and those who are God's people and and those who are righteous before God um, are are getting to to live as God intended. We talk about this and on occasion um, it's been a helpful word picture for me personally as well as I think many of you. Um, There's this sense in which the fabric of our world is, is put together, right? It's linked together and when we see injustice, what we have is a fraying of the fabric of our world. Things are not right. Some of you know what that feels like because you survived Thursday. That's what you call nervous laughter. Like, oh, you're talking to me? Some of you know what that's like because the fraying of whatever relationships are maintained around a Thanksgiving table. They're just not right. They're they're frayed at this. So this is injustice when it frays, but justice is when it all gets put together. And the Bible says that that when the day of the Lord comes, this is what it's going to be like. There's going to be no fraying. There's going to be just a a connectedness there. And lastly, in verse 4, as he's describing this, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb, the mountain where God met the people of Israel um, for all of Israel. So 
You have this sense of order. In other words, when the day of the Lord comes, rid of the bad stuff, healing and goodness come, there is a sense of justice, no fraying, but also then the people um, who, who um, are living this out get to live according to the ways that God said is best. Now, when you hear the, the day of the Lord described like that, people are like, I'm in. Count me in on justice and order and healing and being rid of evil in the world. That is a good, good, good day. That's a good day. And the, the, the fantastic news is, is that God didn't leave us guessing as to when this was going to happen or what the day of the Lord or, or when the day of the Lord was going to um, bring um, or, or come about. He sent somebody. He sent a messenger. He sent an announcer um, to let us know. This is verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So when you announce the day of the Lord, this is what we know, that the prophet who comes, the Bible says in verse 4, behold, I will send you, excuse me, verse 5, behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day. So we have somebody who steps in and announces this beforehand. The prophet comes before. And he comes, how? In the spirit of Elijah. That's what he says. That's how the Bible names him, describes him. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet um, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Why Elijah? He was an Old Testament prophet. If you're not familiar with church, um, in 1 Kings, um, uh, he, he stood, uh, represented righteousness, spoke on behalf of God, moved in the spirit of God, spoke by the spirit of God, spoke in power by the spirit of God. So we've got Elijah. Okay, we've got uh, uh, one who comes before announcing the day of the Lord, and he comes like Elijah in the spirit and, and power of, of God. And then lastly, verse 6, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. There is a social impact. When God sends the announcer, when he sends the prophet, what happens? There's this kind of change. Now, Pause here. We know who this person is. We know who the announcer is. We know who the prophet who comes before is. It's John the Baptist. Why do we know that? Because Jesus said so. Multiple times in the, in the Gospels, uh, Mark 9, for instance, uh, the disciples ask, hey, why does the scribe say that, the John, uh, excuse me, that Elijah should come first? Jesus is like, he did come, knuckleheads. His name's John, okay? And, and, and he uh, makes this very, very clear all along the way. Did he indeed announce the kingdom of God? Yes. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what John uh, the Baptist said. Um, kind of, if you will, the last of the Old Testament prophets. What about, um, uh, what, what about this kind of social impact? Well, I'm, I'm glad that you asked. Can we flip over for just a second to Luke chapter 3? Luke 3, starting in verse 7. He, this is John the Baptist, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. That's a great way to start a sermon. That's a great intro right there. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the roots of of the tree. See, there's that root thing again. He's not just cutting the tree down. He's taking it out. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 10, this is where we see this impact. 
So, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? He answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him this, teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? He said to them, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. And then he goes on. The crowd says, oh, you must be the Christ. John the Baptist is like, oh, no, 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 no. The one who's coming after me, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his shoes. I put all that in in perspective to say this. When the day of the Lord gets announced, with the last prophecy that we have before John comes on the scene, this prophet comes before in the spirit of Elijah, And he has this impact. The last prophecy that we have ends in verse 6 of Malachi chapter 4. And then we've got a very important page. In my Bible, it's this page right here. It's the page between Malachi and Matthew. It's the page that represents 400 years of silence. God comes on the scene Here's good. Elijah's going to come. This is what the day of the Lord's going to be like. 400 years of silence between God's promise about what it was going to be and the inauguration of the fulfillment of that promise. 400 years. I bring that up. Because God used that silence, that 400 years of quiet, to ready his people for what he was going to do. So if you and I are going to prepare for these four weeks of Advent, wouldn't it be good for us to just recognize sometimes God uses silence to prepare us like he did then. Sometimes God doesn't speak because he's using that to to shape us. So the question for me shook out um, this week, something like this. Like this page right here, it's important. What do we learn from it though? What do we learn from that page between Malachi chapter four, verse six and Matthew chapter one, verse one? Three things I think um, that we learn. What do we learn from the silence? Um, when I was a kid, uh, I was a teenager, I worked at a radio station in my hometown. It was like two watts. I think it covered about three houses was the range or something. It was small, super small. Um, one of my first days there, uh, radio manager, the station manager says to me, hey, listen, you know the rule, silence is golden. You heard that saying? Yes, sir, I've heard that saying. That's not true in this job. Okay, got it. Thank you so much. Uh, Some of you, after your holiday, you think to yourselves, oh man, silence is definitely golden. Some of you, though, are beating, your heart is beating so hard after God right now that you think, God, if you don't speak, I don't think I'm going to make it. God, I need your leadership here. If you don't give it to me, I don't know that I'm going to live. I don't know that it's going to go. I don't know that this relationship or this thing or this parenting moment or whatever is actually going to take. I don't know. So what do we learn in the silence? Number one, I think this, um, that God's desires are still legitimate in the silence. What do you mean by that? Well, you see God laid out the first four verses here of, of, um, of Malachi 4. 
getting rid of evil, um, healing coming to people. There's being a sense of justice, no fraying there. This sense of order that we live our lives according to what God has said, has, what God has said is best. Like those desires are still legitimate. People think sometimes, oh, well, see, God's not speaking. Therefore, he must not want it. Too bad. No, no, no. The things that God said then are still true now. And so uh, because his desires are still legitimate, it would be important things like lying is still lying. Yes? When God is speaking and you're in right relationship with him and everything's just kind of going just like you want it to, and when God seems withdrawn or you seem distant or however it's shaken out for you, however, whatever language you would put to that, lying is still lying. Well, if lying is still lying, then justice is still justice. And so we need to continue to pursue the things that God has said worth that God has said are worthwhile. We need to continue to pursue justice. We need to consider, c- continue to do good in the world. We need to continue to love those around us, to treat neighbor as a verb and not a noun. God's desires are still legitimate. Pastorally, it would go something like this. Uh, th- this question. Like, if you think, hey, God's being silent right now, um, I'm not sure. I would ask you this question. What do you know that you're supposed to be doing right now? What do you know that you're supposed to be doing? Like, what's the last thing maybe God really impressed on you? What do you know uh, that you are supposed to be doing? Um, and if you, if, you, if you know that, are you, are you doing that? So I'll just give you some examples from, from the Bible. Um, uh, uh, Jesus one time was healing a guy. He put salve on his eyes, a blind guy. He said, now I want you to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, this is a, a, a pretty good walk for this blind guy. So, I mean, it was, hey, Jesus... I'm blind, and you put mud on my eye like I'm supposed to go find the pool. Anybody, can I get an Uber here? I mean, can I get a, somebody help me? Like, what if that guy hadn't gone that far, though? What if he hadn't gone to the pool of Siloam? What if he had just stopped at the first water and holy found? After his resurrection, Jesus tells Mary, you go tell the brothers. Go tell those disciples to go to Galilee, and I'll meet them there. What if they had said, No, man, Jerusalem seems like a better place. Thomas, in fact, wasn't there the first time that Jesus appeared to the disciples. John tells us he had had showed up later, and what's Thomas doing the whole time? Oh, well, unless I see the nails in his hands and his feet, I'm going to... He struggled with doubt because he wasn't there in Galilee when Jesus said to go. The disciples are gathered um, outside of Jerusalem, and, and Jesus ascends into heaven. They're just standing there looking up in the sky like, oh, what just happened? Um, and an angel shows up, goes, hey, boys, listen, you need to go back to Jerusalem and wait on the Holy Spirit. Ten days, ten days they had to wait. Thankfully, it wasn't 400 years, but ten days they had to wait. And they met and they prayed and they didn't know what else to do. And finally, the Holy Spirit rushed on them and the church was birthed as a result of that. But what if, what if they hadn't done that? So here's my question. What do you know that you're supposed to do and are you doing that? Here's a question for you as a follow-up. What if God, what if you're experiencing God as silent because you haven't done the things that you're already supposed to be doing? Have you fulfilled the things that God has said already to you? Waiting, I think, um, if we're obedient and understanding the Bible right, waiting in most cases has nothing to do with inactivity and passivity and has a heck of a lot to do um, with, with a kind of active patience that positions us 
for God to move and, and, and shape us, shape our character and sharpen the skills that he has given us. And you see this throughout the Bible. Joseph goes from this arrogant teenager, hey, listen, brothers, you're going to bow down to me, to, the, to the, basically the vice president of Egypt. But man, that was about a 20-year period of waiting right there where he had to um, not only have his character shaped, but also get sharpened um, by how God was at work in my own life. Uh, when I was much, much, much younger, I was, you know, going to be the Christian speaker guy, and then it became the preacher guy, and now I get to pastor of people. How better? How much better is this than th- some of the things that I dreamed of earlier? And I, what in the waiting, God shaped not only my character, my heart, but also sharpened skills to to deal with you. God's desires are still legitimate even in the silence. And the question is, I think, what has God told you to do? And are you actively waiting in that? Second thing, I think we learn from the silence. Again, God has expressed what his heart is for the day of the Lord there, is that God's movement is still active. Even when it's silent, even when it's God's movement is still very much active. Again, God's bringing these things about here. He's, he's getting ready to raise up the prophet. Um, and what we see is that his movement is still active. I, I think there's a couple of temptations here. Let me try to enumerate them. Number one, um, we are tempted, I think, to think that because we don't see God moving, that somehow he has hit the pause button. We're tempted to think, oh, I don't see God moving, therefore he must not be moving. Now, number one, you're not that smart. Can we just put all that on record? I'm not either. We don't see God moving, so we're like, oh, well, God must not be moving. Eh, wrong. God is always at work. Can somebody say amen to that? Even though we don't see him, he's always at work. And this page right here, representing 400 years of what some people say is silence, was actually God readying the world for what the Bible calls the fullness of time. Galatians 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born under the law, uh, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those of us who are under the law. God was readying the world to receive Jesus. That's what he was doing. So, in the 400 years of silence, so roughly 400-ish B.C. to the time Jesus came, some fairly important things happened. Anybody heard of Alexander the Great? Anybody? Yeah. 331 B.C., Alexander the Great um, kind of cruises across uh, what's now the, the Middle East, conquers the Persian Empire, um, takes over that. He ultimately dies. Kingdom, His empire is split into a couple of different ways, but he carried with him a couple of things. Language-wise, linguistically, he united what was known basically as the Western world at the time. He united that with a common language of Greek. And he carried with that language this kind of mindset or, or frame of mind, this worldview that, that helped shape how the Bible was written and the language it was written in. Because if everybody speaking at least has a common language there, it's pretty easy to share the gospel. Who's with me? That's one of the things that God was doing. Linguistically, it was united and culturally united under um, Alexander the Great. Spiritually speaking, after uh, Alexander's empire was split, you know how that goes, there's some fighting 
fighting, 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 because there's always fighting. Um, uh, and and uh, um, there's one particular um, ruler took over the Middle East, took over Jerusalem at the time, named Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, late 100s BC. It's not just a history lesson. It's important, people. Uh, late 100s BC, like 175 or so, takes over. He hates the Jews. So much so that he says, if you keep the Sabbath, if you own a copy of the Old Testament, we would call it the Old Testament, the Torah, or if you circumcise your males, that is a capital offense and you can be executed for that. I mean, that's basically what it meant to be Jewish at the time. Keep the Sabbath, circumcise the males, read, learn, obey the Torah, the Old Testament. It's a capital offense. Ultimately, it was, it was um, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes ultimately did the, the worst of the worst. He sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple to defile it. What is God doing in that moment spiritually? Like, what is he up to? He's helping a people learn to live under a regime that did not like them. Is that going to come in handy at any point? He's helping those people learn to do that. Ultimately, these people rise up. The Maccabees, if you grew up in a different uh, tradition that wasn't Protestant, uh, you, you may know 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th Maccabees. Uh, the Maccabees rise up. They have a revolt, and you know several things happen. Don't bore you with all of that. But I mean, there's several things that happen along the way, and out of that comes a couple of different groups. Uh, one group called the Sadducees. Anybody heard of the Sadducees in the New Testament? Those who basically compromised with the ruling party. And then there was this other group called the Pharisees that came out of that. A, a, a group that said, you know, no, 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 we're not going to compromise. We're going we're to be people who uh, maintain God's purity and law. And what we find is that ultimately both of those systems are bankrupt. Compromise with the world or seeking my own uh, right standing with God via my religion. Both of those systems are bankrupt. Therefore, enter Jesus, right? This is one of the things spiritually is unfolding. Finally, in 63 BC, uh, the Roman Empire, this is right towards the end of this blank page. Roman Empire comes in, unites it governmentally, um, takes over politically. Um, they build roads and all sorts of things. They set up a guy named Herod the Great who builds a temple and is the, the king, the, the ruler over that area when Jesus was born. So we're tempted to think that because we don't see God at work, God's not at work. Wrong. God, in, in the 400 years of silence, is bringing all of this to pass so that when the Messiah is born, the world is exactly the right setting. The, the second temptation, I think, is, is to believe, okay, well, Okay, so God's at work. I, I believe that, but like he's not working either fast enough or in the right way or whatever. And so I'm a good project manager. I'll just take over this project. The, the temptation is to say, oh God, I see you might need my help here. So um, go ahead, draft me onto your team. I'll stand as a free agent and I'll, t- I'll, just, I'll just take over from here. I'll take this, whatever responsibility is, into my own hands, and, I, and I'll, I'll move the ball down the field. And it's, we've seen this before. Abraham and Sarah, back before their names got changed, Abram and Sarai, hey, we're going to have a kid. God promised us a kid. That's awesome. Golly, clock's ticking, God. You know what? Go ahead and go in and... Uh, and Go in and uh, you can have uh, relations with my slave, Hagar, and, and Ishmael gets born out of that. That didn't work so well for anybody, did it? Uh, Moses, you've heard of him before. Numbers chapter 20. 
He's fed up with God. He's fed up with the people. God's like, speak to the rock. Get him some water. He's like, I ain't speaking to no rock. Bam, 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 bam. Water. Didn't work out so well for him. Didn't get to see the promised land uh, because of that. Um, one of the more unique stories in the Old Testament, um, David, King David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. They were transporting it on a cart, an oxen-drawn cart, instead of carrying it by the poles as was prescribed. And so as they're going along, um, uh, the, the, they're going through this rough patch, and the, the cart kind of tips over, and it looks like the Ark of the Covenant's going to fall off and onto the ground. This poor cat named Uzzah reaches out and best of intentions. He goes to steady the ark. And what happened? God struck him dead. I'm just going to take it into my, literally, into my own hands. God, I got it. I, I'll make sure the ark doesn't fall. The ark doesn't fall if you're carrying it on poles, people. Am I right? Instead, they put it on cart. And what, what was the mistake there? Us thought his unholy hand was cleaner than God's holy mud. I mean, it just doesn't work out well when we go to take it on our own. When, when we go to manage it on our own. The temptation is either God's not at work or God, you must need my help. Neither of which are true. I go back to this. What are you supposed to be doing? Do that. Be faithful with that. If God's silent, hasn't moved you yet, hasn't spoken to you differently yet, Keep doing what you know you're supposed to be doing and just let God shake, shake it all out. The call is clear. Just be faithful in doing what you know to do. Last thing I think we learned, last lesson from the blank page of the silence of God in between the Old and the New Testament goes something like this. God's promise is still true even in silence. God's promise is still true. Why do you say that? Well, he promised Malachi chapter 4, a day of the Lord. He promised a prophet to announce it, and the prophet came. John the Baptist came. He promised that, that after the prophet would come, would come the Messiah, the one who, who uh, begins, who, who initiates this, this kingdom moment where the kingdom of God is beginning to establish and, and conspiratorially take over the world through his people. And guess what? The Messiah came. He promised the prophet. And he came. He promised the Messiah, and he came. The promises that he made then came true. The promises that he's making to you and me, guess what? They will come true. Some of you are facing situations, health stuff, job stuff, relationship stuff, family stuff, whatever stuff. Some of it's so fresh on your mind because of the holiday and what you had to sit with, deal with, who you had to speak to, sit beside, put up with, however it shook out for you. Promises of God then came true. The promises of God to you and to me, guess what? They will come true, even in the silence. It still comes true. I, I read this this week, and I just I want to close here in Psalm 89. Um, l- listen to this verse. This is Psalm 89, verse 8. O Lord, God of hosts, who is as mighty as you are? O Lord. And then I love this phrase. With your faithfulness all around you. Some of your translations may say, with your faithfulness surrounding you. 
your faithfulness all around you. I say that to say this. His promises are still true, even in the silence. And the very, the, the very thing that you encounter as you draw near to God this morning, as we take a moment here in just a second to, to pray and reflect and think and just, hey, God, what? The very thing that you encounter is God's faithfulness. Why? Because his faithfulness is all around him. It's, it's surrounding him. So you come in bearing burdens, carrying stuff, and you know what you are met with is the, the faithfulness of God to his promises. Oh, you know what? Listen, I came in and I barely made it in today. I'm surprised the building didn't fall down because of the Thanksgiving that I had. I come in bearing great sin and great shame. And you know what you're met with? The, very, the thing that, that God meets you with is his faithfulness all around, surrounding him, because he says crazy stuff like, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you come in bearing sin and shame, and you know what God meets you with is his faithfulness. You come in heavy-hearted because of what you are walking through, and you know what God meets you with? He meets you with his faithfulness, his promises, the true church family, even in the silence. No matter what your struggle is, no matter how quiet you think he's been, how low he's turned down the volume, how inactive he seems, how disconnected you seem, his faithfulness surrounds you. He will meet you with it. His promises are true. Let's pray together. Let's have a moment to reflect here. Would you take just a second and ask God, just ask him, Father, what, what had my name on it? Holy Spirit, I pray that as these good folk are here, dealing with the things that they're dealing with, walking in and through what they're walking in and through. However they are wrestling with whomever they find themselves at odds. God, I pray that you would meet them with your faithfulness. The faithfulness that is all around you, surrounding you. It's only possible, Lord Jesus, because of you, how you came, that you came, how you came, and what you did while you were here. We don't ever want to get over that. Spirit, please continue to speak to the people of God. Do with us what you will. Said in Christ's name, everybody says. Amen.